Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The Slackers are one of the best currently active ska bands on the scene. And if you go see them play, it's Ara Baba John that is holding down the beat, which is arguably the most important part of a ska band. Ara is a pro at the traditional ska groove and explains its nuances to us. But he grew up playing in other kinds of bands, like the furiously heavy Leftover Crack and the kinetic third wave band Agent 99. We also bring up an even earlier funk rock band that he was in called Das Booty. We cover a lot of territory on this episode, and we learn a lot about drumming, which is a favorite subject for us on this show. I think it's interesting that Leftover Crack and the Slackers share musical DNA. I know. I can't really think of uh, two bands that are sonically more different within the ska scene. Definitely. And Ara's that link. I think there was a few other people that were kind of linked. I mean, they were sort of in a similar scene in a weird way just because of proximity in New York. Yeah. I mean, you know, punk rock is a small town. And within that town, ska punk is an even smaller town. Yeah. And the mayor of that town is Aaron Carnes. No, the mayor is Ara, <laughs> who we're talking about today. <laughs> uh, well, great, great interview. I love talking about his experience in these two very different bands, but also really like I love talking about uh, drumming and kind of breaking down some of the how ska drumming works from a person who's really good at it. Yeah, I love talking to drummers. More drummers on In Defense of Ska, please. So you joined the Slackers in 2003, right? Yeah, it was it was the last week of 2002. Uh, I think one of my first shows with them was a New Year's show in Guelph, Canada in 2000, turning into 2003. Now, I had read that... Um, when you joined, you basically got a crash course in how to ska drum uh, from Vic and Dave. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so how did this work? Well, they, Dave made me a bunch of orientation tapes that uh, Dave and Jeremy Mushlin, their old trumpet player, who's kind of the acknowledged ska expert, made me a bunch of mixtapes basically and said, this is the stuff that we want your playing to be informed by. 
and you know there's a lot of scatolites, a lot of a lot of classic stuff on there. Um, and so I would listen to those religiously, and then I would go into practice. And Dave and Vic would actually make the sound that they wanted <laughs> the drums to make. You know, they'd be, be like, "Can you can you make it? Can you do more like a shump, shump?" You know, like, <laughs> you know, they're like like something falling off of a desk. You know, hitting the floor like really loud. Be- you know, between the action on the hi hat opening, and then it shutting and you hitting the rim of the snare and the kick, like the space between there, that, that should be like, you know, the cliff that, 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 you're, that you're falling off of. But, but when you land, you know, we're all landing together. And it, that there was a lot of like um, visuals sort of given to me to, so that I could approximate the, the slacker sound, you know, because the slacker sound was different than any, any of the other ska bands that I knew of at the time. And my, my ska knowledge was pretty limited. So I listened to a bunch of Slackers records as well. And, you know, once I once I started playing with them and sort of got in there and, and saw what they were after, got a better idea of it, um, I started trying it, you know, and, and hearing what my sounds, you know, see, seeing if they would make them smile or make them wince, you know, then, then I could figure out what worked and what didn't. What so you had been playing in in ska bands for a while, um, but not not traditional oriented bands, more you know faster groups. What informed your drumming, a uh, ska drumming before then? God, Topperheadin on Clash Records, um, that first Fishbone EP. Mm-hmm. Any, any punk or rock band, I mean, the Police, any punk or rock band that would you know take ska and sort of cut it up into something else. Um, a lot of post-punk. Slits were one of my favorite bands. Um, just weird stuff, you know. I never went. I didn't go. To, I didn't discover ska really until recently, um, because I kind of never knew where to start with it. I never really had a, had an entree. Hmm. So I'd say post-punk was really more of a uh, a thing for me, and that's kind of what I brought to the Slackers. Did you have any like uh, top favorite drummers uh, growing up when you were getting into playing music? Yeah, I loved um, Budgie from the Slits. George Hurley of the Minutemen was a big one. Grant Hart, Husker Du. Um, and then, you know, I would love all of these sort of more more famous rock drummers like Neil Peart, John Bonham, Stuart Copeland. Um, Neil Peart was a big one. He was just a super creative and interesting and disciplined drummer to watch. I always kind of picked up and enjoyed his discipline. So there's there's a lot in the mix. Pete Thomas from Elvis Costello and the Attractions. I I stole a lot of stuff from him and put it on like a lot of Slacker records, a lot of snare fills. Was it hard to um, to go the more you know Scottalites route? Because I feel like because I'm a drummer too, and uh, playing ska the quote unquote correct way is not necessarily easy. No, it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm glad you're a drummer and and that you know that you know what you're talking about. I was super conscious of you know because it feels like you're playing drums in reverse almost everything. Yeah, exactly. Everything you're used to as a rock drummer, you you now have to just completely turn around. And so it's one of the things Dave had said to me early on when we were touring is like, you know, just make the left hand rim shot land with the kick drum and I'll be happy, you know, just, just make those <laughs> things land together. And it's, it's true. It's like, you'd be shocked at how hard it is to do that 
consistently. Well, I mean, you're a drummer, you know, to do that consistently in a five, seven minute song for an hour, hour and a half, you know, whatever. Um, it's just, you know, you just have to get crazy repetitious with it and practice the shit out of it. And so, you know, I didn't get comfortable doing that. I had about two or three different ska beats that I could do, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I got good at those two or three. And then, you know, Vic would give me like a song or two and he'd say, here, try this beat, you know? And so then I'd have like four or five ska beats, you know, each, every couple of years I would add something to my repertoire sort of via Vic or Dave, you know, who would think that I was kind of ready for this, this new rhythm or the band was ready for this new rhythm. And so now, you know, I have a much better understanding of, of what I'm playing, what I'm doing. There's a lot more shading in my playing. Um, I feel like 15, 20 years ago, you know, I was, I was hitting hard and kind of trying to make everything stick, make everything land. And now, you know, it's, I, I feel comfortable that that can happen while at the same time, you know, investigating other sort of dynamics of sound. Not only like what you said about being able to to be consistent for a full song. I think that the other challenge with it is that it's hard to make it sound natural and not like kind of a stilted beat because it's supposed to have this groove to it. And when, when you're playing it and it's sound and, and it's unnatural for you to play, it's hard to make it have that correct balance. Even if you're playing the, the notes correctly. It is, it is. Um, I think Somebody, maybe Joe Strummer, I know The Clash had a song called The Crooked Beat or That Crooked Beat. And that's how I think of it. It's slightly crooked beat, you know, in which you, you feel like you're sort of playing behind yourself almost. And you're creating like a little a little breath of space um, between the hi-hat and the, and the rim, for instance. And it's a very subtle thing. And of course, when you're conscious of trying not to play it stiffly... <laughs> You know, you, you, you end up playing it stiffly and, and I'm sure I played it very stiffly, you know, at first and for, and for the first couple of years, but, you know, gradually, like I said, you loosen up and, and that, and that's what the music is all about. You know, it's just, it's just kind of, it teaches you if you listen to it, if you're open to it, it, it will teach you how to play it. Is there a mistake that most drummers make when trying to play ska? Um, that's a good question. There must be because it doesn't seem like I, I well I, sh I should say I don't think enough drummers know what a drummer like Lloyd Nib sounds like or can visualize exactly what he does. I, I I just think that the the vocabulary isn't there for most drummers, hmm. and so I think the mistake is to to err on the side of obviousness and and overplay. Um, or play it too much like the rock style that they're used to. Um, the, that's just the, the most common thing thing that I hear is too many kick drum beats. Mm. Um, and it's just, you know, stuff that ends up sounding like punk ska. When if you just, you know, if you just have the kick drum beats, um, if you just cut that stuff in half, you could probably, you know, <laughs> improve the groove a hundredfold and give space, you know, to the rest of the, the guys in your band to, uh, to play their instruments. What do you feel more comfortable playing the, the ska beat now or like the fast punk beat? Like if you sit down at the drums, which feels more comfortable? The ska beat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you, did you ever like playing, playing the really fast one? Oh yeah. 
I loved it. And that's the yeah. thing I used to be able to do the best. Um, and I haven't done it in, in several years. I haven't really mm -hmm. had to. I mean, I've had recording sessions where I've done it on songs here and there. Sure. But I haven't gone out with a band and done it every night for about 10 years. Yeah. And that that's a great thing. I mean, I, I, that was that's what I grew up with, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's also hard on the body, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It can be tough on your lower back, you know, as you get older you start thinking of, you know, your body a bit more. And so to play a little lighter, play a little slower, a little groovier, you know, you might, you might add some, some years to your, your, your life as a drummer. So in that respect, I, I kind of, I, I'm preferring the ska stuff these days. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you call the fast punk beat? What do you mean? Like I've, I've heard people call it the money beat or the fat records beat or but but how how do you categorize it in your brain like when you're like oh i'm gonna play that beat what do you think of it as i think of it as a george hurley beat um, oh, okay as a minute one beat nice but i probably just call it the fast punk beat too yeah that's fine yeah the punk beat it's the punk beat you know like when i was playing leftover crack we had like five beats you know be like here's the hardcore beat there's the punk beat there's the dance hall beat you know and you, you would try to, you would just try to find a place for, for the three to five beats. That was our, that was our joke. What was the dance hall beat? Dun, 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 dun. Ah, yeah. That was my, that was my big contribution to that band. Um, we were writing a song called Nazi White Trash and we needed to bridge uh, the verse and the chorus. We couldn't figure out how to do it. And I've been playing a lot with this band called Ruder Than You out of Philadelphia at the time. And they played a lot of dance hall. And so I was like, oh, I, I have this dance hall thing I've been doing. And so we, we, we threw it in there and it, it worked out great. That's awesome. So why did the Slackers um, tap you to join the band if you didn't have a history playing the kind of music that they play? Um, we'd grown up in the New York music scene together since the early 90s. Um, I was in, I was in a band called Agent 99, um, and Agent J, the guitarist in that band, would go on to become the Slackers guitarist. Um, Alec Bailey, the bass player for that band, would go on to become um, Joking Victim and Leftover Crack bass player. So we were all in this scene together, and, and we kind of knew what we can do, what we could do, you know. And I'd been in a lot of little side bands with Vic and Marcus in particular, and so when it came time to um, to look for a guy, you know, I was playing actually with Vic and Jay backing up Ari up from the slits. And I had just left leftover crack um, the year before. And it was kind of, you know, doing this thing with Vic was kind of my way of saying, Hey, I'm, I'm back in the game. I'm available. You know, so if you ever need me, you know, I'm ready. Cause a couple of years prior, they, they had needed a drummer. Their, their original drummer, Luis had left, but I was doing leftover crack at the time. And as they tell it to me now, they just thought I wouldn't be interested in, in joining their band mm -hmm. back then. Um, and I don't know, maybe I would have, maybe I wouldn't have, I, I don't know. But in 2003, it was perfect timing. And, you know, they just, they gave me a shot. They thought I could do it. You know, they knew what I was capable of as a, as a player and as a listener, you know, I was res responsible. Um, and I was a friend, you know, and it's nice to have 
a friend around who who knows what what you're trying to do. When you're a band that um, revolves around touring, it's nice to have people in the band that are friends. Yes, <laughs> yes. I you know I was I was good friends with most of the guys. Glenn was the only one who I didn't know at all, and so I had to get to know Glenn. We've really become good friends in the last few years, I would say, but. The other guys I knew quite well, like like Jay Nugent, for instance, was the first person I met when I moved to NYU from California. He was the guy who lived across from me in the dorms, across the hall. And so, you know, when I look back on that kind of stuff, it, it just feels faded almost that, that, that we're playing together now. Didn't uh, Jay join the band around the same time as you? Yeah, he became a, a, a full member about a year after I did. But before that, he would join them on tours of Europe in particular and play stick bass live mm. and just, just to sort of bulk up their sound. So they knew, they knew what he could do and he'd been playing in, in the King Django band for 10 years also prior to that. Yeah. And you know, Jay, they knew that Jay was a soldier and that he would be a good road dog too and a good friend. And, and basically when I joined the band, I, I started lobbying to get him in there. You know, because I thought it would be super, super exciting to have uh, me, him, and Vic as a rhythm section in particular. So, the first record that you played on was Peculiar. Is that right? Yeah, that's the first full length. Yeah, yeah. We did an International War Criminal EP, and then we did uh, Peculiar the, the following year or two. So, Peculiar was a record that you recorded live the rhythm section in, in, uh, in, in Ernesto's uh, in Holland and then didn't keep the audience sounds, but then did overdubs in an actual studio in Jersey. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. What was the thinking behind this concept? Well, we, we loved the way that we were sounding live at the time. We didn't want to go into a studio and come across as sounding stiff. I think that, the couple of recordings we'd done to that point with, with this particular unit, it wasn't capturing our live sound enough, the excitement of that. And so we started finding records we loved that had a very live sound to it. One of the ones that we zeroed in on was um, Blood and Chocolate by Elvis Costello. And that's the sound we went for. Um, and so mm. that's why we recorded a couple of our Ernesto's performances and chose those tunes and then did, did the overdubbing. And I think, I think it worked out really well. I think that the excitement of those performances really, really translates in those, um, well, yeah, studio live versions. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't know it was a recorded live since there's no audience. No, in it. no, it was real. Like we were really trying something. We we're like, how, how do we do this? Can you do this? You know, are you allowed to do this? And, you know, <laughs> we, we've, we've all grown up listening to live records that were heavily overdubbed and treated, you know, without us really knowing it at the time. And so that's kind of what we were doing. You know, we, we were taking almost like a major label approach to a live record, you know, but, but as an indie band. Are you aware of any other records that did the same approach of like taking some of the recording from a live session, overdubbing, but then also not having the audience and not calling it a live record? I can't think of any offhand. I'm sure I'll think of a million once the interview's over, but 
you, you didn't have records that you had done this that you were like, we're going to do exactly what this record did. No, we just had a sound that we were after, you know, and it was that blood and chocolate sound. It was Joe Jackson. It was, you know, a way to play ska that didn't sound like, you know, too third wave-ish or too derivative. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we wanted it, we wanted to progress, but without sounding like we were trying hard to progress. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of where we landed. So the, right before the slackers, you, you were talking about, um, you and Vic were playing with Ari up. Yeah. How, what was that experience like? <laughs> it, was, it was incredible. Um, because we were all kind of in love with her. We were all in awe of her, mm-hmm. you know, she, uh, she had this amazing German accent and this just pile of dreads and she was just, <laughs> she was so cool, you know, and she was about 10 years older than us. And she'd lived in Jamaica, you know, like <laughs> in like the wilds, you know, and she'd had a couple of children and, and then she came back to him. Like she had just this wild story, like, and she just looked and acted like she lived it, you know, and you didn't, you didn't fuck around with her. And so we <laughs> would, so, you know, we didn't, like I said, we were just in awe and we would practice beneath um, a record store called Jammyland in, in New York on third street and first Avenue. And that was the Slackers rehearsal space. So me and Jay and the Jamieland uh, owner named Ira would play bass. And Vic would be down there playing bass or guitar or keys. can't remember which. And we would just, start, you know, Ari would start singing us these Slits tunes. And she would sing us our parts kind of the way that Vic and Dave would sing me the drum parts that they wanted me to play. And and just, you know, to be in there and hearing, and as a Slits fan, you know, hearing her sing a song like Newtown, you know, at me, <laughs> and like, like just as, just as good as she could sing it, you know, 20, 30 years prior was like, fuck, man, it just knocked me out. You know, I really just tried to keep myself together in order to play well enough, you know, <laughs> to <laughs> support what she was doing. And that, and that band, you know, we, we played for about a month or two. And it, and it was a great, great experience. It was a great lineup. One of the great shows we played was opening up for Nina Hagen at Webster Hall. And it was just kind of our, our triumphant moment, you know, after rehearsing and playing a bunch of little shows on the Lower East Side. This was like a big triumphant moment in front of all the New York hipsters, you know, who really understood her and really knew that scene. And we were accepted. And, you know, I called Vic the next day and I was like, thanks for getting me involved in this because... Um, it was super special. And any time you ever need me involved in anything else, hint, hint, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> you know, and, and it was really after that, that I, I joined the Slackers and um, things got rolling. So you, uh, you were in Leftover Crack. You joined in 2000, Leftover Crack? I joined in about 1998 or nine, probably 99. So you, you, yeah, you weren't the first drummer, right? You were the second drummer? Yeah. I think I was the second. They, they'd, they'd done a few shows on the West Coast where they were living at the time with another guy named Amory, who um, I think he played for the Alkaline Trio at the time also and did some stuff with the Beastie Boys. But anyway, they they moved. Sturgeon and Alec moved from the West Coast back to New York, and I joined the band. And yeah, it was around 1999. And, and so your initial run with... Uh... Leftover crack was just a few years, right? Because I think you left in two thousand two. Yeah, it was about two years. 
I, I quit about two or three times, but the the, <laughs> the, the main the main quitting was in two thousand one, right after um, nine eleven. We we did it. We toured after nine eleven, but it, I I had worked in the Twin Towers um, f- right up until four days prior to nine eleven, and so I, I knew a bunch of people who died, and it was a really it really fucked my head up. And and that's the day our record came out and was on 9-11. And that's the day our tour was supposed to start. So I was trying to sort of, you know, put all this together, wrap my brain around this. Um, we started the tour two days later. The record came out. Um, you know, we, we, we did all the things. But after about four or five weeks, I just I couldn't really handle the stress of being in a <laughs> an anarchist anti capitalist band and you know trying to mourn my my dead friends and co-workers now is it true that um sturgeon was making like some jokes and cracks about 9-11 on the tours that was part of the reason that you yes yeah and they were you know it's like i almost can't fault him for just kind of being himself and going forward with his thing at the time but yes that was one of the things I, I found really um distasteful and and just couldn't live with. Yeah. There was a show in particular in Toronto we were opening up for uh, AFI at a place called the Opera House. And I mean this sounds pretty innocuous in re- retrospect, but he introduced Alec on stage as Osama bin Bailey. Now, I mean, you know, if that happened now, it would be just kind of stupid. And at the time, it was kind of silly and stupid, but it, it was so hurtful to me in the moment that I just got up and walked off stage, and that was that. You know, I didn't play with them again for another few years. How many songs into the set was that? Three. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a bold, that's a buff move. Yeah, well, fuck them, you know. Like, yeah, for real. I did. I felt bad about it, you know, years later. Like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. But what, but what am I supposed to do? Sit there and, you know, be a jerk? I mean, if it was uh, any other band, like the story of the drummer quitting three songs into the uh, into a set and just leaving would be one pretty high up on the list of like crazy things that that band hap- that happened to that band. Yeah. <laughs> but um, you quitting mid set is super low on the list of crazy things that that band went through. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know, and I might have known that at the time, like, well, this is kind of, this is like a drop in the ocean, you know, like, all, the, all the shit that, that goes on around here. It's like, this is kind of how you get yourself heard, you know? And it, and it's really, it's true. It's like, you prove your point. I proved my point. A couple of years later, I felt better about things. I rejoined the band, you know, but proving a point in that band and with those guys required quitting, you know? Like you'd have to do serious things in order to, for people to pay attention, unfortunately. And, and you know, it's completely un, not like that in the slackers. And so it really, like, it took me a while to learn sort of how to be a grown up in a grown up band where people don't behave that way. Yeah. What was that transition like going from Leftover Crack to the slackers, like tour wise? <laughs> it just seems like night and day. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't, it wasn't because, you know, when you, when you're in your, I guess what? late twenties, early thirties in a band, you know, touring around the States. It's like, you know, van life kind of feels the same no matter what. Mm-hmm. But then again, 
you know, the slackers enjoyed drinking, but there was no hard drug use, you know, and that, that's a big cultural difference between the two bands. And Leftover Crack, there was a lot of hard drug use. And, you know, I was pretty square in that regard. I've never tried heroin or anything like that. And I, I just never wanted to mess around with um, my drumming. So, and I barely ever drink when I'm on tour. So I'm, you know, I'm like the cop, basically. I'm like, I'm hanging out <laughs> Back and everyone thinks I'm 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 the narc, you know. Um, but you know when you're around hard drugs all the time and hard drug culture, you, you kind of feel like an alien. And then when you're you know you're in the slackers and everyone's drinking, then you kind of feel like an alien there, you know. So for a long time, I just felt like kind of an outsider in both bands. Um, but it was always much easier to hang out with guys like Vic and Dave, for instance. Well, really everyone in the Slackers, but particularly Vic and Dave, and just sort of, you know, get older together and discuss more adult concerns like like fatherhood, you know, <laughs> like Dave yeah. and I became fathers around the same time in 2004. And then it was like, oh, great. You know, now I have someone I can I can go through this with because I'm super scared and I don't know how I'm going to be a touring musician on top of a parent and, you know can I, like, is this going to destroy my marriage? Is it going to destroy my band? <laughs> like it was just all happening at the same time. But fortunately, you know, it was happening with, with guys that I trusted, you know, in, in, in the slackers. How did all that turn out as far as uh, being a parent and, and touring all the time? It actually turned out great. You know, um, it was kind of mine to fuck up basically. And, <laughs> and fortunately I didn't fuck it up. Yeah. You know? I mean, I can't say enough good things about the band as human beings and as players and as friends. You know, we, we've been together 30 plus years and we still create, you know, on a nightly basis. And that's just it's just kind of an amazing thing. And we're better friends now than we've ever been. And then, you know, my, my daughter is 17. She's going off to NYU next year, which is mind blowing and, and amazing. My son's 13. My wife and I have been married for 22, 23 years now. And, you know, I just, I have solid people in my world, you know, and those are the people that I have cast my lot with. You know, I don't, I don't hang hang around with bullshit people. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like parenthood changed your perception of the way that time moves? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> me, me too. <laughs> how, how does, how, how, how do you feel it so? It just, if like the days feel really long sometimes yeah, and the years, the years feel really short. Totally, man. And, and, you know, that, that's the, that was, that would be the strange thing for me, you know, being on tour and then coming, you know, for three weeks and then coming home for three weeks, the days, I mean, on tour, the days can feel super long too, but at least you kind of know, you know, what's coming, you know, yeah, you know what you're doing. Um, and you know your job, whereas at home, you, you find yourself just kind of sitting and bearing witness mm -hmm. you know, to the life of a child and just being present for them. You know, and presence requires that that's required 24 hours a day. Yeah. And that's yeah, that stretches time out considerably, especially when they're really little. You're just staring at this person and every six minutes feels like an eternity. <laughs> just trying to make <laughs> sure that they're they're OK. Yeah. Well, how old is your child? Oh, they're, I mean, they're pretty big now. They're eight and 10, so they okay. can do their own thing. But like, I remember those first couple of years, like it really feeling like 
just like every moment you were present for it. It wasn't it great. Yeah. And wasn't it also really awful sometimes? Yeah. You know, it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. Like a lot of people don't talk about about that, but it's just time gets so slow and things get so um just frustrating and difficult that you just you lose you lose your identity after a while. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, it would that would be the good thing about going back on tour. It's like, oh no, <laughs> here I am. I'm I'm the drummer of the of the ska band, you know, and I make money and I bring it home to the family and I have a purpose, you know. Definitely. What so on tour, since you weren't drinking, I know that that's like what a lot of musicians fill their time with on tour. Um, yeah. What What were you doing to fill your time? Reading. Yeah. Like super boring. Super boring. But I mean, I just love to read. What sort of stuff were you reading on tour? God, I can't remember. Probably, you know, a lot a lot of Russian novelists. Um, War and Peace, Slutter Chekhov, um, Paul Bowles, Jack Kerouac. I mean, you name it. I just get on themes, you know. I've been on a Kerouac theme for like the last six months, and so I'm reading, rereading, you know, all the stuff I read when I was 15 or 16, and all the biographies and all the letters. And there's just something lately that's really, there's some, you know, the thing is, I'm turning 50 this year, and so I think I'm kind of going back and, you know, checking out all the stuff that was seminal to me when I was younger and seeing and just retracing my steps and seeing, um, seeing if I was right, you know, and I, and then, and it's a good feeling because I feel like I was right about a lot of stuff. That's great. Well, are the other guys in the slackers readers? Like do the books get passed around the van? Yeah, they do actually. It's funny. Um, they're not as, as big a reader as I am, but, um, if, if we're on tour in Europe, for instance, we we usually take a bus, Mm -hmm. uh, and in in the galley of the bus, that's where all the the finished books wind up, and it's it becomes sort of the library of the band, the lending library, and you can just sort of take and, and leave at, at will. Nice. Over in um the UK, did Barney ever drive you guys around? <laughs> oh no, that was before my time. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know Barney? Yeah, Barney. Barney did a tour for us. Ah, how was that? scary. (laughs) (laughs) I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Say no more. Yeah. Bus drivers are a whole nother breed. Some of them are great. Like there's a few that I've stayed good friends with. Yes. Um, to this day. And you know, they're still like on the up and up and there's other ones that just fell off the face of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. No idea where they are. (laughs) And, And at the time they were like, they were like doing speed and, Stand up all night. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Watching TV. We had a guy who just loved watching TV while driving. Oh, God. And, you know, now everyone kind of does that, but he was doing that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, <laughs> doing 100, you know, with all of us on the bus. <laughs> down the and you'd get up at like four in the morning and you'd be like, oh, my God, is that he's watching TV? This is unbelievable. We're like, we could die. I have no control over this. I'm just going to have to have faith that it's going to work out. You know? Did you ever do a tour in a Sprinter van with no windows? Yes. <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> what, you don't like not looking at Europe? Oh my God, man. <laughs> Again, books, you know, this, this is where books came in handy for me is I yeah. could just pick up a book wherever I was at and, and just escape, you know, because yeah, some of those Sprinter van tours, 
you know, you you would just find you, your seat, right? Like mm -hmm. the seat that would work best for you. And for me, it was the one closest to the door, closest to a window that I could maybe crack and get some air. Um, it's just like being in jail and just seeing like a little bit of like sunlight. And it's like, well, if I could just see that, if I could just see that patch of sky, you know, I, I know I'll be okay. Yeah. There's a lot of tours that felt that way. Yeah. Nobody smoked in the van, right? Um, not in the slackers, but in leftover crack, most people smoked. Oh God. Oh. Yeah. And I smoked. I, I was a smoker for 25 years. So when did you quit? I quit about 10 years ago. Okay. Was it hard? No, actually I, I didn't smoke at home when I was off tour. I only did it on tour. Mm -hmm. um, so the hardest thing was really just the first two days of tour as a non-smoker. I, I it was like, geez, I can't, I have like no reason to go outside and escape these conversations. You know, I just oh, have to, yeah. I have to be accountable and like just either participate in them or, mm -hmm. or leave, you know? And then it's, it just stopped being weird after about two days. I don't know why the two day thing was the thing, but that's how it was. Was it weird for you? I, I never smoked. Aaron did. Uh, I did. I quit smoking uh, oh. around 30, almost 31. Yeah. And it was incredibly difficult because I was smoking every day. But also, Aaron, didn't didn't you start smoking like kind of as a joke? Not as a joke. I, I well, I just started smoking occasionally around smoker friends, right? Uh, and I I was an occasional smoker for a number of years, and then at some point I was going through kind of a stressful period. I just kind of started smoking more, dealing with the stress, and then it then is kind of like next thing I know, I'm I I have to smoke every day. Yeah. And then, you know, I couldn't really take a day or two off. It was like a big deal. So yeah. then then quitting was like a really big ordeal. And I was like one of the hardest, worst experiences of my life was going through that period of weeks yeah, of just getting it out of your system and then readjusting all your habits yeah. and patterns that, you, you, that were all positioned around your cigarette breaks. Right. I missed marking time with cigarettes. I missed having those moments for myself. You you talk about how time feels different. Time when you quit smoking feels weird. It's like huge, right? <laughs> huge it's so heavy. bizarre. Yeah. Well, it's because you feel like you have no control over it anymore. With, with cigarettes, you, know, you, you, yeah. you, could, you could be in control of it. But you're just out in the big, wide, bad world without cigarettes. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't miss it, you know? No, I'm so glad I quit. Yeah. But yeah, just getting over the hump is is a huge thing. Well, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Same to you. Yeah, thanks. I can't believe I ever did it. You know, it just seems so stupid now. But at the time, it was a big deal. Yeah, I agree. Because I like to hike and stuff now. Yeah. And the if I had not stopped smoking, I would not have been able to to hike or it would be so miserable that it wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I don't even know why I did it, man. I think like my dad did it. And so it was a way for me to like bond with him and then he died. And then that's, I, I was approaching 40, you know, I was like, well, I should probably stop now and I can't do it with him anymore. So fuck it. You know? Yeah. And, and it's, and now it's like, yeah, I play drums better. I can taste food. You know, I can run. <laughs> like, it's like, why did I ever do that thing? You know? I want to ask a little bit more about um, your initial leftover crack experience. Um, 
you you played on the first record, right? Mediocre Generica was what it ended up being called. Right. What was that experience like? It, well, recording it was a great experience. I've, and and in the in the studio, I felt like we were onto something really special. And it's still what is when I listen to the record. I haven't listened to the record in a few years, but it always sounds like a special record to me. Um, and so I'm proud of it. And but at the time, you know, we were trying to release it as um, with the title "Shoot the Kids at School." Yeah. And I, th- I think this was after Columbine. It might have been shortly after Columbine. It was at least around that same time. Um, and, you know, I was young and I didn't think anything of it. It sounded like a perfectly good, you know, title of a punk record to me. But Hellcat was was decidedly against it. They wouldn't release the record with that title and with the picture that Sturgeon wanted to put on the cover of him entering a classroom with a gun. Um, again, at the time, this all felt somewhat innocuous, semi-provocative, but, you know, not as big a deal and as stupid as it would be now. Um, at the time, you know, I thought Hellcat were being cowardly and putting it out, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) their, their stance was, look, we have parents here, you know, we, we, we're not that irresponsible. Change the title of your record, change the cover and we'll put it out. And so that's what Sturgeon came up with. And he was so pissed at having to do it. He's like, you know, now it's just mediocre and generic and we'll just call it mediocre generic. So I know he was, yeah, he was really angry about this whole experience. Were you at the time, were you angry or are you kind of like, whatever, who cares what it's called? I think I was a little irked, but not, I don't think I felt like there was an injustice that had been done to us. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just, I was more irritated and frustrated that, that a, a really good record I played on was going to come out, you know, eight months later. Um, that that's what bothered me. It's oh, so like, the name the name thing pushed it back eight months. Yeah, the name wow. and, the, and the artwork. Yeah, at least eight. Months. It might have been longer than that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I could see being more upset about that than than actual name change. Yeah. Well, you know, for all of us, this record was our chance to go on tour finally and be in a real band. Mm-hmm. Um. And so the longer it took for the record to come out, you know, the longer it took for us to start our careers as musicians, you know, as rock stars. Like we thought we'll just go out and like open for Rancid, be rock stars, you know. Um, and, and little did we know, like the dues that, you know, you actually have to pay, you, you know, even as like 28 year olds, <laughs> it's like, no, you guys have to pay. <laughs> you don't understand the amount of work you're going to have to do to, you know, get some respect here. and and. You know, so that's what was funny is that all that was just kind of delayed for, for a little while, but that's okay. You know, they, I stand by what Hellcat did now and I'm really glad that it wasn't released with that title. So you, um, you grew up in California, right? Yes. I saw you post a thing about, um, the growing, growing up in Downey and, uh, your father owning a restaurant called Stocks. Yeah. I, I grew up in Whittier, California and he, oh, Whittier. Okay. Yeah. Which was about 10 miles from Downey and he had a, a restaurant in Downey called Stocks, um, throughout my childhood. What kind of restaurant was Stocks? It was a sort of a classic diner, um, classic dingy diner with delicious breakfast. It's like classic greasy spoon, but like, sure. high, like high end greasy spoon. <laughs> Nice. And I loved it. I loved going there. I kind of grew up with all the people who worked there. My dad was a great boss. And so those people stayed there 15, 20 years. And it was a really 
just a nice environment to grow up in, you know. So when did you move to New York? When I was 17, I got into NYU. And that okay. was my, uh, I'd visited New York when I was 15 on a class trip for a week. And I just knew instantly that I wanted to be there. And so I started doing well in school. You know, I had, I had a purpose. <laughs> and I was like, I'm, I want to go there. You know, I applied to NYU early decision. I got in. My dad was totally cool with helping me out and getting me there. And, you know, once I was there, I, I stayed and I met, I met my people. Yeah. So was Agent 99, was that the first ska band that you played in? Yeah. Yeah. So that was about my second or third year in New York. And I had dropped out of college and I was living uh, in the East Village with Jay Nugent, uh, the guitar player. And he told me he had this band and they needed a drummer because their their current drummer was going on to a movie career. Um, and he he was the brother of our singer, Dania. Mm, yeah. Why don't you tell people uh, uh, one of the most famous movies that this drummer ended up doing? Yeah, so he went on to become Jar Jar Binks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, have the next you know, rest of his life ruined for, you know, a short while. He's, he's, he triumphed, like he's still standing. But yeah, yeah. You know. He's got a great podcast right now. That's what I hear. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good dude, you know, and, he, and he's like, he's just a good guy. So it was, it was hard to see him, you know, go through a lot of that. Um, we weren't super close, but I would just see it sort of from afar. But anyway, yeah, he was, he was the drummer that I replaced in uh, Agent 99. So what was your experience with ska before that? None. None. Okay. <laughs> I'd been in a punk band when I was 14 um, in, in California for a couple of years with a bunch of older kids. I'd been in a Red Hot Chili Peppers fishbone style funk band called Das Booty when I was 15, 16. Um, and you know, but no ska, you know, until I got to New York. And then it was kind of like, well, if you want to play, you gotta, you gotta learn this stuff, you know? Did you know what ska was and what bands were you aware of? I really didn't, you know, like I said, my, my, my knowledge was really just coming from, you know, London Calling, uh, the first Fishbone EP, um, the police, you know, those, those, that was the ska that I knew. Who was the driving engine then behind Agent 99? Was it Jay or was it? Who was it? It was it was Jay and Dania. Okay. Yeah, but it, you know, in terms of it, like encyclopedic sort of ska and reggae knowledge, Jay was probably you know beginning at that time to absorb a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, he he really continues to be that guy in the Slackers, and I yeah. So I I think Dania was writing most of the songs at first. And the irony is that a lot of them were about Vic <laughs> because they, they, they'd gone out and broken up and, you know, so oh. wrote a lot of like revenge songs about Vic. <laughs> they were great songs. You know? <laughs> and that's the first time I met Vic was he was filling in on bass. Um, maybe it was before they got Alec even, but it was up with this place called the Rhinecliff Hotel in, I think it was in Kingston, New York. And that's when I met all the Slackers guys and Vic and yeah, it was, it was, it was a good moment. 
So Agent 99, um, how would you describe the sound of that band? We always, we called ourselves a mod band Mm -hmm. because we had a hard time describing our sound. You were definitely fast. Um, but I don't know that I would say punk ska because it's not really punk, but it had a, had a, it had an energy to it though. Right. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of, yeah, I don't know how to describe it. You know, I, I I don't know. How would you describe it? Yeah, I guess maybe two-tone influenced, but kind of, kind of with a little bit of more of that sort of fishbone energy without, you know, without going into like punk rock stuff or hardcore or anything like that. Yeah, I think that's fair. Jay and Dania were coming from more of a ska and reggae background. Alec and I were coming at it more with like the Minutemen and the Jesus Lizard and stuff like that. And, you know, we kind of, we kind of met somewhere in the middle. What was the scene like? And like, what, what were, what were some of the bands you played with? Oh, wow. It was a great, vibrant scene uh, in the early nineties in New York. We we did a lot of, sh- a lot of festivals, a lot of matinees at places like Wetlands and CBGBs um, with bands like um, Bigger Thomas and Mephiscopheles. Um, Mephiscopheles was the big band at the time. They would headline most of these festivals they were a big deal and and i think they toasters were also a big deal at the time um moon records was was the label that everyone started out on we had our first sort of cassette on moon i think it was like a six song cassette and they did a lot for for that scene they were kind of the engine of that scene there's there's just a ton of stuff, man. So, so many bands. And then you'd go up to Boston and there would be a whole vibrant scene there. Like between New York and Boston, there was just a lot happening. You could play, you know, weekends of shows endlessly. I'd heard that um, initially some of the ska bands weren't super, it, like there was, it was a little funky, some of the ska, playing with some of the ska ska bands. So you guys, as you progressed, would start playing with more hardcore and punk bands. Yeah. We, I think we were trying to play with bands that weren't just ska. You know, we didn't want to necessarily get ghettoized as a ska band, which it happened quickly and easily in the New York scene. So, you know, but so there was also a vibrant hardcore scene, um, rock scene. So we would try to, you know, sort of move between those scenes. And we were pretty well accepted in each scene. We did pretty well for a couple of years. Um, until Alec basically had a, a had a breakdown, and I didn't see fit to keep the band together. And being young, I figured I would just join another great band, and that was it. <laughs> so Alec Alec quit the band. Yeah, Alec had a, a, a drug problem at the time, and he just kind of disappeared. Oh, I see. And you know, we 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 tried to carry on without him, but it just didn't feel right. So I thought it would be time. It might should be time to end it. Who joined Leftover Crack first? Was it you or Alec? Uh, it was Alec. Um, after after Choking Victim disbanded, um, Sturgeon had a bunch of these songs, a bunch of leftover songs. And so that's why he, one of the reasons why he called it Leftover Crack is just all the leftover material from Choking Victim. And he and Alec were living on the West Coast, kind of trying to get clean. It got clean for the most part moved back to the West coast and then I joined them and we started playing together, but I didn't trust them at the time. And so I would charge them every time that I performed with them or rehearsed with them. How much did you charge them for 
rehearsal or a show? Oh, and it was, it was, I can't, it was like 50 bucks a show and like $25 a rehearsal or something like that. Amazing. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> well, you know, and I feel kind of dickish about it now, but at the time I really didn't trust them. Sure. And that's how it went. And then after a while, you know, I became a band member and, st- you know, stopped charging. I, I started to trust them more. We got on good terms, but yeah, it's funny. That's, that's how it started. Did you stay friends with Alec over the years? Yes. Very good friends. Now I never met Alec. I mean, I've, I've met Scott and I've, uh, I've read things about that band and, uh, you know, a lot of the people in that band seem crazy. Um, I've only ever heard good things about Alec, you know, as a, just a very sweet person. Yeah. You want to hear some bad things about him? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Cause I, I guarantee you, he would love for me to tell you some bad things about him. That's, okay, that's go ahead. Kind of, and I'm not serious. I'm not going to tell you bad things about him, but <laughs> that's, that's the kind of sense of humor he had, you know, like he would, as all these people are going around saying sweet things about him, he, he would be the one laughing saying, man, I was a fucking prick. You know, I did this, this and that behind this guy's <laughs> back and that guy, like, you know, we, we always call Alec an assassin. You know, he was, he was the, the money guy in the band. He was a brutal businessman. He was great at it. His job outside of the band was he was a financial analyst. He had like five or six different like high end degrees in financial analysis. He worked for a big firm in New York. Um, He he was an accomplished dude in addition to being like a major bass player. Um, So, you know, he was also a fuck up. He was a fuck up and kind of a, a skeevy dude at times. And and that's you know that's that's the level on uh, on which I approached him. He was he was my friend and I loved him, but you know we <laughs> he was also a criminal. <laughs> sure, but God bless him. You know, I mean, I like I said, I love that guy. And he, if he were here right now, like he would want me to tell you just the worst possible things about him. So, <laughs> <laughs> like I'll tell you something. He he stole all of the equipment out of the Agent Ninety Nine Slacker stubborn or uh, Skinner box rehearsal space. He stole all the equipment except the agent 99 equipment (laughs) 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 to, you know, to pawn for drugs. And he was like, I don't know. I've got crazy. Like how did, you know, the place got broken into like, so, you know, what happened? And, you know, vanished shortly thereafter. So we all kind of put it together, but that's, that's shit that Alec would do back in the day, you know? (laughs) But then he'd come back 10 years later and make sure that, that you got paid, you know, double, triple because he thought you were the best drummer on earth, you know, and he, and he loved you. That's excellent. Yeah. So uh, I want to jump forward again to um, your time in the Slackers. You know, when you join, it's like mid 2000s. There's sort of this vibe around ska being kind of dead music, kind of uncool music. Yeah. What was that like for you? Or did you, did you see any of that? I mean, you're, you're in probably one of the best ska bands at the time yet. Like probably I imagine with some people, the, the idea of ska being, you know, some terrible music was so pervasive. It didn't matter if you were in the slackers or what band you were in. No, it didn't matter. And, it, and I was always conscious of it. And it was always hard for me to tell people I was in a ska band without wincing a little because not because I felt guilty about that or bad about that because of how I thought they might perceive me or the music I was playing. And 
you know, the the problem with the perception of ska at that time is that I, you know, I couldn't talk about how great my band was because people would automatically kind of write me off or write us off. And if they'd asked me what kind of band I was in, and I said ska band, it was it just, you know, you'd see them kind of glaze over a little bit. <laughs> and it, it was unfortunate because I really did feel and still do feel like I'm in one of the greatest bands on earth, you know? And, yeah. And when people ask me what we do, um, I, it's just, it's just impossible to describe, you know, like it, it's like when you asked me what kind of band agent 99 was, it's just, it's hard to describe what these bands do. You know, it's, it's a little easier, easier with a band like leftover crack, but with the slackers, there's just so much going into it that, you know, I, I, I don't know. I leave that definition. Yeah. It feels, if it, it feels like it diminishes it a little bit, if you just say we're a ska band. So to make a, a, a long answer short, I feel like, now it's it's a lot easier to tell people you're in a ska band. Um, you know, people have a lot more respect for it now than they ever used to, uh, because of you know cultural developments over the last few years, and, and guys like Jeff Rosenstock and the Interrupters, and maybe the Slackers, and you know a lot, just a lot of good stuff happening in the music. Your your book, Aaron. Um, oh, thank you. You know, there's there's been a, a there's been a lot of momentum going our way that have, has sort of made the music more respectable. So, so thank you. Yeah. I was going to ask like, you know, if you're the slackers, you know, the last 15 years haven't really been, you know, you do, you kind of, aside from the pandemic, you're kind of doing the same thing every year. Right. You have a tour, you, you know, you do these tours every year, every, every so often you put out a record, you know, your, your life and your routine isn't really changing. Your, your music isn't dramatically changing either. Right. But so you can watch the cultural shift happen as you guys aren't really doing anything different. Yeah. It never really affected us. You know, people would say throughout the last 20 years, um, hey, it looks like Scott's getting big again. Or like, oh, man, it looks like, you know, that wave that happened a few years ago. We'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, we would we just wouldn't even <laughs> notice these things because we were just, you know, in our zone. Um, and either we were having good tours and being creative or, or, well, we never had any bad tours or made bad records. You know, I don't feel that way, but we would be yeah. more creative at times than others. So we were on our own little personal journey. We, we call it the mission, you know, and whenever like guys in the band kind of get distracted, we'll, we'll have like a meeting, have like a sit down basically be like, so are you still, still on the mission? <laughs> and it's it's good, you know, to, to be able to check in with each other like that from time to sure, time. Sure, yeah. Because you do you do fall off the mission from time to time. But so the cultural trends, I, I only feel like over the last couple of years we've benefited from that. Um, whereas in the past, I don't I don't feel like we were really a part of the trends at all. Yeah, I think um, from a personal level, um, I've been reluctant to say that there's anything changing. Just because, you know, people jump the gun and they say, oh, okay, Ska's back or Ska's okay now. Yeah. Uh, and of course, some of that is, uh, some of that is happening now, you know, of course, when, when Jeff's album came out. Yes. And my book came out, which was a few weeks apart. There was all these articles about Ska being back, but then those, those, those are publications are not, don't care about Ska, you know, a month later. So. However, it does seem like, you know, now, now that we're in 2022, it does seem that 
the idea of if you say I'm in a ska band and everyone laughs at you and, and immediately brings up real big fish, it doesn't feel like that's the case anymore. Like maybe it was four years ago. Exactly. I do feel like it has changed a bit. Yeah. You know, however, incrementally, it's not, it's not a dirty word like it used to be. And so you guys, um, in, within this whole last few year period, you had, um, Rolling Stone did a whole thing with you and uh, Washington post did a whole profile with you. Yeah. And with that, that was uh, written by, uh, uh, our friend Jessica Lipsky, by the way. Yes. Who is awesome. Who we had on the show. Yeah. Um, so what's that like to get like uh, mainstream press? <laughs> that was incredible. You know, that all happened in, in the same week, those two things. It was a Rolling Stone. Oh, did it? Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. And it was the last week. It was basically the last week of our tour in December. And it, it had been a really meaningful tour. And it was a really meaningful way to sort of cap off the year. And um, it just felt great, man. You know, I could finally send I could send a, you know an article on us in the Washington Post to my mom, you know. I'd be like, look, this isn't just a phase. You know, this thing I've been doing, it's, yeah, it's it, look, it's a real thing. And I, I mean, I just visited her in California last week and she still asked me if I was going to go get my degree and this and that. <laughs> and you, so that's where you pull out the Washington Post article. There's my degree. Yeah. So that lasts for about a week. But um, no, it was really nice. It's really nice to be validated by those things. You can talk all the shit you want about things like that. But then when they acknowledge you sort of on your terms and you don't have to sell out you know it's it's really it's really nice it felt really good i had heard that um the slackers had a policy or a preference towards traditional or non-scott punk bands being the openers um is this is this the case i don't know if it's a policy it might just be a, a personal preference yeah, like to clubs and stuff and promoters, like, please get, please book traditional type bands. Yeah, I think it's just easier. Yeah, exactly. For clubs and promoters to try to sell a quote unquote ska bill, um, or at least they think it will be, <laughs> than to put us on a bill with, with somebody else. But I, I think that's loosening up a bit now. Um, and I know that within the band, you know, like half the band is more trad ska and more interested in having those types of acts with us to just sort of bolster the lineup. Um, and I know that that Marcus and I, for instance, and maybe Jay, are more, more interested in in the punk and punk ska type bands. Um, you know, just interested in taking more chances. But you know we're the ones who can afford to think that way. I mean, Dave is 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 in charge of the band business, and so he, you know, when he puts things on the road, he wants to make sure they're profitable. You know, so that sure if he takes chances, you know, any chances that are taken fall on him if they fail at the end of the day. So you know, we try to split the difference and um, and, and see what happens. You know, yeah, I heard Jay say something, say something like. Um... That that part of the reason it was loosening up was because of um, like a lot of these new bands or you know newish bands like you know we're the union and, yeah. and Kill Lincoln and stuff how these bands were very clearly um, socially politically aware and had you know these types of lyrics and 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 they were obviously about something not just being silly and so because of that 
you way you're way more into having these types of band open for you than if they were just whatever kind of goofy ska punk bands yeah well that's the thing is that these bands exist now you know Um, yeah we bomb the music industry opened for us back in 2006 i think it was and they so and that's when i met all those guys for the first time and they were my favorite band on earth like from the from like you know probably a few shows in i was like oh oh my god i'm totally sold you know and i want to play with more bands like this going forward but there just weren't many bands like that um until now you know and and their bands or at least we didn't know of them you know and a lot of times we're kind of out of the loop in that way but you know now there seem to be a lot of bands inspired by bomb the music industry or, or jeff or you know and so your options to to play with bands like that are much greater now than they used to be. And that makes it a lot easier to book. Yeah. Jeff told me about that tour and um, he said that they were really um, nervous <laughs> at, about playing with you guys. Cause you guys seem like super cool and they just seem, they just felt like super dorks, but then they were like, eventually were like, Oh, they're, they're just, they're dorks too. They're dorks it's too, cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's older dorks. A lot of times people, you know, they're just, people seem cool, but they're just older, you know. They're just older dorks who know how to dress right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, those guys, it was interesting playing with those guys because like, for instance, they'd go over well most nights, but we we played with them in Chicago at Reggie's and our crowd was booing them. Oh. And I felt really bad, you know, I was, I was by the side of the stage with Marcus watching them and we looked at each other like, oh, this, this sucks, you know, we don't want to see them get booed. And I think people throwing beer cans and Jeff and John, and they just, they just loved it. They loved the booing. <laughs> they loved the beer cans. Like it didn't phase them. In fact, it made them even better. And it wasn't a fuck you thing. It was like, that's right. This is all part of, you know, the journey. Like, this is just fun. You know, boo us. This is great. And I talked to them afterwards and I was like, oh, I'm so sorry they did this. Like, and Jeff couldn't have been, you know, happier. It was like, he was thrilled to be booed by Slackers fans. And then <laughs> this is what we signed up for. Yeah. And a couple, like, he just had the best fucking time. He embraced the whole thing as he does. And a couple nights later in Toronto, I look out in the crowd and there's this guy jumping around. It's at Lee's palace. There's a lot of people there. Everyone's going crazy. And there's a dude dressed in a red suit, identical to Marcus's red suit. And it, and he's singing all the words and he's, you know, pumping his fist in the air. And it's Jeff. It's fucking Jeff out in the audience, you know, who's who's the Uber <laughs> fan who has dressed up like Marcus that night and is out in the audience. <laughs> I, just, I do a double take, you know, and I go up to him after after we're done playing. I'm like, are, are you like, were you taking the piss? Like, you, you know, I couldn't believe it. And he's like, I am your number one fan. I fucking love you guys. Like, you have no idea. And and, it, and from that moment on, I kind of I understood Jeff. You know, I was like, you just you're a lovely human, you know, and you're, you, yeah. you love music. And that's, he's been that guy for me ever since. Did uh bomb the music industry, uh, do a ska version of, um, pavement. I think gold sounds. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he told me that they specifically did that because they thought it would annoy your audience. <laughs> <laughs> that bastard. I love it. But they liked it. It didn't annoy them. I didn't know that. But that's the <laughs> record he made a point of giving me after that tour. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or I guess a couple tours later. Yeah. That's really funny. Did that did so the audience were they were down with a, a pavement ska cover? 
you know, I doubt they even knew they were hearing a pavement scar. <laughs> they didn't know they were getting injected with pavement. No, you know, <laughs> now they're huge pavement fans. They just thought it was a good scar song. And it's funny. I actually saw, I actually took Jeff to see pavement when they reunited a couple of years later. Oh, nice. How was that? It was great. They played in Central Park. They did like four or five nights and, and they were amazing. I saw pavement, um, not when they reunited. I saw them when they were, they're like last their last few shows before they broke up. So when they were touring their final record, I, they played in uh, like, they played like a couple nights in a row in, at Fillmore in San Francisco. So I went to like, yeah, like two shows in a row. How was it? Oh, it was amazing. I was like, they were one of my favorite bands at the time on top of the, the fact that they were really good. Yes. Like yeah. I didn't realize that pavement were, um, such good players at that point. Like they were like really good musicians. Yeah, you know, I probably didn't even realize that either. I just loved the wordplay, and I just yeah. loved the melodies, and and they were one of my favorite bands forever. And the drummer, I think they had a percussionist too. Like they just kind of had a cool groove. Yeah, I was like, wow. I just like it didn't translate to me as like a fan of the records until that point. Bob Nastanovich, he was like the yelling guy slash percussionist, and I think Bomb the Music Industry had a type of guy in there also might have been Matt. I can't remember his name, but they they would, you know, that's the same spirit that that, that would inform bomb the music industry. Yeah. So you already brought up Das Booty. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit more about the legacy of Das Booty. Yeah. So the you had some demos that you recorded like in the late 80s, right? <laughs> some recordings. Yes. Okay, so it gets up on YouTube at some point and People believe that this is the long sought after lost Red Hot Chili Peppers demos for the uh, <laughs> Uplift Mofo Party album that was never finished because the singer it was because the the guitarist at the time had died and he was doing a lot of the singing. Yep, <laughs> and so people were convinced. <laughs> yes. Do you know why? Do you know why? Did, did were you guys part of? letting people think that or was it just a complete misunderstanding it was a complete misunderstanding and it was um okay so we probably made the, these demos in 1987 88 mm -hmm. and i think that this complete misunderstanding happened about 15 years later um yeah where we got sort of yeah <laughs> so you know we used to be fanboys of the chili peppers fishbone scene and we would go to all of their shows and, you know, try to talk to them and try to just be there <laughs> on the scene, you know? Um, but we never played with any of them. We were just, we were fanboys, you know? And so, no, that's, that's as, as, as close <laughs> contact as we had to that scene was pretty tangential, you know, just a bunch of goofballs in the suburbs. Did you um, upload, did you or somebody in the band upload the demos or did somebody have your tape and upload it and then that, and somebody wrongly assumed it was Red Hot Chili Peppers? I don't, I didn't do it. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if like our ex-guitarist did it, you know, mm -hmm. create a mythology. Um, but I don't know for a fact how it happened, but it, you know, it was probably in-house, but it wasn't me. Yeah. Cause it's funny. Cause so your recordings were around the same time as this really uh, chili peppers recording. So that like checks out. Yeah. And then the fact that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Anthony Kiedis singing a lot of those songs. And 
So, cause you guys didn't sound like him. Yeah. So it's like, Oh, it could be the, it could be the guitarist singing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what? I, the more I think about it, the more I think it might've been like a last ditch attempt by our old guitarist to get what he thought was, you know, a, a legitimate piece of music heard somehow and to give it some kind of meaning. And it was a good tape. Like there's, there's good stuff on there. Um, <laughs> you know, it like good enough to pass as Chili Peppers demos. Let's put it that way. You know, it wasn't sure. Yeah. Um, but that's probably what happened. You know, was there a ton of slap bass on it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that part checks out, man. I want you to look it up. Like there was some good stuff on there. Like love bomb. I remember that being a smoke and bones, like some really stupid, like juvenile humor dada is not dead that's the song there's, i wrote down that's yeah <laughs> coming back to me now where aaron and i grew up there was a pretty big like funk funk metal funk rock scene like lots of slap bass yeah aaron it, definitely played in some bands with some slap bass did you oh yeah it was good i mean it was a great scene you know like um jane's addiction chili peppers thelonious monster Fishbone. I mean, those are all great bands, you know? Yeah. Up here in the, in Northern California, it was like, um, those bands obviously were, um, mostly from Southern California, but, um, there was, uh, Primus was like considered part of the funk scene, even though I don't know how much of it's really like funk. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Bungle. Right. Same. I'm not really sure they're how, how funky they are, but yeah. And then there was like Limbo Maniacs. Mm-hmm. Do you remember them? Just by name. Yeah. So their drummer eventually replaced uh, Primus's drummer in Primus. Okay. Brain. But yeah, they were more of a, like a funk rap band. Psycho Funkopus. And there was a Fungo Mungo. Oh, yeah, yeah. God. The One of the members of Fungo Mungo joined uh, Third Eye Blind at some point, I think. Yeah. So yeah, that was the scene that, as I knew it up here. That's those are the great, big names. That's a great scene, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't know how well it's like. Um, at the time it felt awesome and it sounded good live, but I don't know how well, <laughs> well, those recordings of age. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I agree. You know, for like a 15 year old boy growing up in Southern California, it was the greatest thing ever. Um, but yeah, do I listen to any of that stuff now? I probably, you know, I'll listen to James addiction every now and then. Um, yeah, I, you know, I'll listen to fishbone. Like, like I can't listen to chili peppers at all. Well, I shouldn't say that. I'll listen to them occasionally. But anyway, yeah, it, it hasn't aged as well as it felt at the time. Sure. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, Fishbone, though. Fishbone have aged. I felt Fishbone have aged very well. But, you know, they could play every style. Yeah. I, you know, I started saying that. And I was like, well, actually, I still love all those bands. <laughs> I, <don't, laughs> I admit that. But, yeah, Fishbone's amazing. And Norwood came up to us after one of our gigs a few years ago on the Flogging Molly boat cruise. And and just complimented us so nicely, and it, it was just like one of the big moments in my life, you know, that that one of my heroes would come up and say that. Oh, that's awesome! That's so great. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. 
And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash in defense of Scott. You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the In Defense of Ska Discord. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific indefensive ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On that note, we leave you by saying, ska now more than ever. Mm -hmm.